the question we are asking this morning is, how can Christianity survive in an adverse world? How can Christianity survive in an adverse world? By adverse, I mean an opposing world or a contrary world, because the world at large says things like this, that if your belief system or your religion can fit in and even celebrate that all truth is relative, then that's great. And if it can celebrate that all religions are good and that they all lead to the same God, then that's even better. And if it can celebrate whatever culture deems to be the next acceptable thing, like you know, various sexual identities and preferences, then it will be accepted and you will be accepted. But if it doesn't, then naturally you will and your religion will find yourself in an adverse world, in a contrary position. You might even experience some opposition. And this is the increasing reality of Bible-believing evangelical Christianity today. And so the question is, can we survive in this world? And the Apostle Paul, who is the author of the book of Philippians, is going to say a resounding yes. Here is a man who has experienced much affliction for the sake of the gospel, and yet we've seen time and time again, or he's seen time and time again, the power of the gospel to redeem, the power of the gospel to redeem a situation, the power of the gospel to redeem people back to the Lord, to reconcile them. He himself is living testimony of the power of the gospel to overcome adversity or opposition because at one stage he was the opposition. Have a look at this mini um, testimony of his. Galatians 1 verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Saying you heard of my previous mindset, you heard of my previous worldview, you heard of my previous belief system which led me to live in a certain way, which led me to persecute the church of God, to be opposed to it. He goes on, verse 14, he says, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Just pause there for a second. And fast forward 2,000 odd years later. What are the traditions today? What are the traditions of the world that we're living in today? Christianity does not fit into the traditions of North Korea. Christianity does not fit into the traditions of China and other closed countries. Let's move over to the Western world. What are the traditions of the Western world? What are the traditions of the Western culture? Well, we don't know. It just keeps changing all the time. But what we do know is that there is an increasing opposition to Christianity. So what hope do we have? What hope does the church have? The same hope they grabbed hold of this young, zealous Paul. Look at verse 15. Look at the gospel come in. But when he, talking about God, when he who had set me apart before I was born. An amazing statement. That's a sermon on its own. He goes on and says, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So Paul was, was so zealous for this adverse world, for this different worldview, this different belief system that led him to try and destroy 
the church violently until the gospel meets him and radically transforms his life from murderer to missionary. And so that is why Paul is so radically gospel-centered and why adversity and, and opposition won't deter him from his mission. So here's what I think God's word is gonna tell us this morning or propose for us this morning, that if our lives are centered on this gospel, just like the apostle Paul, if our lives are centered on the gospel, we too will be able to overcome adversity. And how can I be so sure of that? I mean, that's a big statement to make because God's word is full of stories of it. And secondly, we see the fruit of it throughout church history. The gospel won't necessarily take away our situation. It, it, uh, it won't take away the adversity, but rather it will redeem those situations according to the purpose of the gospel or God's will. So let's see how Paul uh, encourages the Philippians with the power of the gospel to overcome adversity so that they and us would continue to be radically gospel-centered in our lives. So won't you read the text with me? If you have it open in front of you, we'll put it on screen too. Philippians chapter one from verse 12. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are more, much more bold to speak the word without fear. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So here's what we're gonna see this morning. The gospel has the power, number one, to make everything a mission field. Number two, to inspire the timid, and then lastly, to overcome detractors. And all within the context of a world that is adverse or opposed to the good news of Jesus. So here we go, point number one. The gospel has the power to make everything a mission field. Uh, or we can say the gospel has the power to make every situation or every circumstance a possibility for the opportunity or for salvation. Again, how can I be so confident of that? Romans 1 verse 16. I read it earlier as we started our service. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's saying I am so radically God-centered. Here's why. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Because the gospel is the power of God to save anyone out of any ethnic background, that then means any situation or any circumstance becomes an opportunity for salvation, even adverse circumstances. But let's go to... Paul's story in Rome and see how this works. He says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers. In other words, he's saying, he literally saying, I want you to understand this. I want you to get this for your encouragement. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, stop there for a second. The immediate context that he's talking about is how he landed up in prison in Rome. 
He, was, uh, he made his way into Jerusalem. He had this uh, donation that he had collected from all the Gentile churches and he wanted to come and give it to the Jerusalem church. And he rolls into Jerusalem and the Jews hear about him. It's like, oh, that's the guy who, who preaches anti-law, anti-Judaism. He's all about this gospel thing, about this Jesus as Messiah. And so they brutally attack him. He gets arrested. He then makes an appeal to Caesar because he's a, a Roman citizen. And so then begins his, his journey to Rome. Uh, there was an uh, attempted ambush on his way out, but that was foiled. And then there were numerous trials before various Roman officials, and finally they agree, finally they put him on a ship and send him off to Rome, but he gets shipwrecked. Then he's bitten by a snake, and then everyone stares at him, waiting for him to die, but the Lord protects him. And then finally he arrives in Rome under house arrest and possibly chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. So that's the immediate context, but now listen to the bigger picture. Listen to the constant opposition. Listen to the constant adverse circumstances. Listen to the, the constant anti-gospel worldview that accompanied him pretty much everywhere he went. Was always opposing, was always opposing his ministry. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 12, from verse 24, he says this. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he says this, and apart from other things, as if that was not an exhaustive list, he says, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. All the churches that he planted, he has this, this, this loving anxiety and concern for them because they too are living in an adverse world. So that's the big picture of what he means when he says, I want you to understand, brothers, what has happened to me. And so we might think, well, well Paul, well, why carry on? I mean, surely it's a sign that you shouldn't be doing this. Not how many of us as Christians, we go, well, you know, if we face opposition, we go, well, this is obviously not God's will, I'm gonna stop. You know, maybe, maybe you should just, you know, kind of mind your own business. And he says, no, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It turns every situation and every circumstance into a possible mission field. Look at this. He says, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The word advance is an amazing word. It's a military term, which means to cut forward. Literally what would happen is that the Romans would kind of have like a, an army of woodcutters uh, that would go before the regular army and th their job was just to kind of clear the way, clear the bush, clear the trees so that the regular infantry could, could march through into these foreign regions. And so all of what Paul has been through has simply served to clear the way forward for the gospel, for it to advance. And you, you read about this in the book of Acts. He goes into a city and there's opposition. He gets beaten up, he gets thrown in prison, he gets put before various trials and councils. But when he eventually leaves the city, broken and bruised, he leaves behind a church. 
And now, look at what's happened. Look at how the gospel has advanced in Rome. Look at verse 13, he says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's saying the, the, the imperial guard and, and all the rest, whoever they are, says the, the imperial guard know who Paul is and they know why he's there. Not because the prison warden gave them the memo and saying, listen, prisoner number 119, he's, he's Paul, he's in prison for this, that, or the other thing. No, no. Like I said, Paul was probably chained to a Roman soldier at all times. And so you can just picture his excitement when the shift rolls by and a new guy comes and he says, hey, since we're going to be chained together for the next four hours, let me tell you about Jesus. And he makes his way through the whole imperial guard. He, he literally has a captivated audience. The imperial guard were elite soldiers who served as personal bodyguards and even as sources of intelligence to the Roman emperors. And they would also be protective escorts to other high-ranking officials. Now listen to why that's so important, because listen to this, this um, quote from a scholar, J. Vernon McGee, he writes this, he says, many of them did come to know Christ. The gospel penetrated Caesar's household. Later, Tertullian, that's an ancient church father, wrote that the Roman government became disturbed when it was discovered that Christians were in positions of authority. Many of these men later died for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So can you see the power of the gospel turning one of the most adverse circumstances into a mission field and begin to penetrate one of the biggest anti-Christian establishments in the first century? Because in Rome, you had to worship Caesar as Lord. You had to worship all of the other various Roman deities. Christianity was not a recognized religion. And Paul wasn't just sharing the gospel with the guards and whoever else came to visit him. Remember, he wrote the book of Philippians, he wrote the book of Colossians, and he wrote the book of Ephesians from prisons, known as the prison epistles. And so he's stuck in prison, but the gospel is still reaching many other cities. And the reason why is because nothing is more powerful than God and the means that he chooses to use. Therefore, everywhere and every circumstance is a mission field. And I was thinking, yeah, this is amazing hope for us. I mean, you can be stuck in a, in a dead-end job, wondering why on earth am I here? And, and suddenly, it can take on gospel proportions. Suddenly, it can have meaning. Suddenly, it can have purpose as to why you are there. And why God has placed you there with these people around you. Our families become our mission field. Maybe for some this is where we receive our, our toughest opposition. But for all of us, like I said earlier, probably our greatest opposition is going to come or has come from the culture that we're living in. Unfortunately for us here in Cayman, this is still regarded as a conservative Christian country. But elsewhere we can quite comfortably say it is post-Christian. It is post-church, because as Christians, we claim exclusive, absolute truth, whereas the world claims pluralistic, relativistic truth. I mean, th those are two major contrasting worldviews. As long as the culture holds to that worldview, there is going to be opposition. We are going to find ourselves in adverse circumstances. But all we have to do 
is to remind ourselves of incredible stories like this. To see that every situation can be redeemed. Every situation can further the cause of the gospel, can advance the gospel, because God has the power to open our eyes and hearts, or has the power to open people's hearts to pay attention to what we have to say. Which then flows directly into the next point. The gospel has the power to inspire the timid. Everyone loves a good, inspiring story, but most of the time, these inspiring stories are kind of center around an individual who has overcome some personal limitation. You know, we hear stories of someone with a physical disability who's completed a, a marathon, and we, and we all get excited. We all get ex- inspired by that, and we decide to take up running for a week, you know, or, or we read of, of, of Christy Brown, who was born with a severe cerebral palsy, but went on to become an artist and an author by painting and writing, check this out, with his left foot. Jean-Dominique Balbi was severely paralyzed by a stroke, and he could only communicate by blinking with his left eye. He went on to write a best-selling book called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly by blinking on the appropriate letters of the alphabet. You know, we, we read things like that and, we, and we're inspired and we think, whoa, if they can do that, then, then what can I do? But you see, we are inspired to do something that will bring us great gain. Oh, you know, I could do this and this will make me a famous author or this will make me a professional athlete or, you know, this will make me a billionaire or, or we get inspired to, to simply lose weight or whatever it might be. But by and large, our inspirations are, are focused on our betterment. Now, don't get me wrong, sometimes it's good to be inspired, especially if it's in the, in the case of you know, our general well-being and our, and our health. But not many people are inspired if it's gonna cost us something, especially if it's, it might bring us pain, especially if it might even cost us our lives. I remember being invited by a friend um, to go to a karate, my one and only karate lesson many, many years ago. And I thought, okay, I've seen enough, you know, kind of Bruce Lee movies and Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, and I thought, it'd be pretty cool to learn some moves. So off we went, and the, the instructor made us stand around this large mat, you know, the edges of this large mat where all the action would take place, and uh, he gave us this rousing, inspiring speech on how he's going to make us powerful and indestructible and unbreakable. And so you could kind of literally feel everyone standing around this match. You could feel the excitement. You could feel the motivation in the room. And so he said, who's first? And we all stuck up our hands as fast as we could. And he took the guy whose hand went up the, the quickest. Now listen, I don't, know, I don't know what happened. It was just so quick. But this guy took a couple of steps into the mat and next minute he was five feet up in the air and came crashing down with a thud on his back. And there was this awkward silence in the room. And you could just see this poor guy, he was like just writhing with pain. I could see he was trying to hold back the tears. In fact, I wanted to cry for him. But he was in so much pain and the instructor said, okay, who's next? And literally everyone took a step back from the mat. All of that inspiration, all of that motivation died as quickly as that guy hit the floor. Because now all of a sudden, self-preservation kicks in. Now I'm thinking, oh, this this is gonna cost way too much. This is gonna cost literally a broken arm and a leg. And that's how I landed up in Bible study the next week. But 
Listen, something different happens when the gospel gets hold of you. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. How incredible is that? Paul's imprisonment, he's saying, is the means or the catalyst to how other Christians are being inspired or filled with boldness to preach the gospel. And he says some of the brothers, so you can imagine some of the conversations that they had, like, hey, are you sure you want to do this? I mean, look, there's Paul. He's in prison. We don't know what's going to happen to him. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He might be executed the next day. What if the same thing happens to you? Maybe just Lalo, let's just join a prayer group rather. That word bold can also be translated as dare or courageous. They went from timid Christians to daring Christians. They went from scaredy cats to courageous. But why? Because like we said earlier, inspiration or motivation usually leads us to do something that will better ourselves and not harm ourselves. So so what's going on here? Was it simply because they heard another Christian was in prison for preaching the gospel? And if that's the motivation, which is what we see in the text, then what that tells us is that something drastic has happened to their hearts. Paul tells us in the text, you see that phrase? Having become confident in the Lord. Not confident in themselves, not confident in Paul, confident in the Lord, because that's what the gospel does. When it grabs hold of us, it begins to shift where our confidence is. When Jesus grabs hold of our lives, the old sinful, selfish you is gradually replaced with the new you who wants to live for the glory of Jesus. You see, if I'm living for self, if all of my confidence and focus is on myself, then I become preoccupied with myself. I become preoccupied with my self-preservation. I become preoccupied with equipping myself because I'm the most important person to me. But what the gospel does is that it saves us from our sinful, selfish self. And what it does is it begins to open our eyes more and more. It begins to give us a greater awareness. It begins to give us a greater awareness of Jesus and this insatiable desire to live for him even at great cost to ourselves. So that when they heard of Paul in prison for the sake of preaching Jesus, it resonated with these new hearts. And they began to be daring and preach the gospel despite what it might cost them personally. So the gospel has the power to inspire us to be bolder because A, it's changing our hearts from self-focus to God-focus. Secondly, the gospel inspires us to be bolder by providing examples of great suffering saints. Great suffering saints in the Bible and outside of the Bible. Like the Apostle Paul from the Bible who in Acts chapter 20, have a look at this, says this, this was on his way to Jerusalem where he would be arrested and then make his journey to Rome. He, he stops over in Miletus and he calls the Ephesian elders to come to him and this is what he says to, him, to them. He says, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And you think, well, well Paul, just 
resign, retire right now, go and you know, have a nice little condo at the Red Sea and blog from home. I mean, why would you do this? Look at his response. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Who talks like that? Who, who says things like that? Someone whose mind and heart has been gripped by something greater than himself. The affections of his heart, the focus of his mind has been grabbed hold of by something bigger than him, more valuable than him. That's why he says, I do not account my life of any value or precious to myself. He goes on, he says, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's it right there. His life has been grabbed hold of by the grace of God and he just wants to tell the world about it even at great cost to himself. When Martin Luther in 1521 was brought before the council to repudiate his 99 theses that was written against the various uh, doctrinal errors of the Catholic Church and the various heretical pr uh, practices. He was brought before the council and they said to him, do you recant of everything that you've said? And he rather famously replies, here I stand, I can do no other. He was declared a heretic and an enemy of the state. Although he wasn't executed like many others, he had to spend a great deal of his time in hiding, which again the Lord redeemed because he translated the Bible into German. So Sunrise, I wanna say that the gospel that they believed is the same gospel that we believe with the same promises and the same implications to it. The same Holy Spirit that empowered them is the same Holy Spirit that empowers us. So read about them. I, I love reading about the, the martyrs and, and the Puritans and reading about their faithfulness, reading about their steadfastness in, in opposing situations and in adverse circumstances. Read about them, let their lives, let their faithful lives inspire you to, to a, a, greater, a greater prayer life, deeper study of God's word and bolder proclamation of the gospel. In fact, let, let's make it our goal to, to be an example to each other of bold witness for Jesus in adverse times. So what we've seen so far is that the gospel has the power to overcome adversity by making any situation a missionary field and that it can in, even inspire the most timid of us to proclaim it. But now Paul mentions another interesting obstacle that it can overcome. Look at the last point. The gospel has the power to overcome detractors. And so you will see in a second that these de detractors are not necessarily detracting from the gospel. They're wanting to detract from Paul. They're wanting to undermine Paul. They're wanting to undermine his ministry, make things worse for him by preaching the gospel. Look at this, verse 15. It says, some indeed preach Christ from, from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So he's saying these, these detractors are still proclaiming Jesus, 
Notice he doesn't tell us that they're false teachers. I mean, he is really used to dealing with false teachers, and he calls them out. He calls them out numerously in his letters. And so we assume that these guys believe in Jesus, and if Paul is not rebuking them as false teachers, then it must mean that they know the gospel. It must mean that they know their theology. They have a pretty good grasp of theology. So, so can it really be that bad? Well, let's look at their motives. It says they preach Christ from envy and rivalry and out of selfish ambition and not sincerely. And he contrasts them with those who preach Jesus from goodwill because they do it out of love. So he's saying this love which promotes goodwill will then negate all of these sinful characteristics, these sinful nature characteristics of envy and selfishness. So the good guys preach Jesus out of love for Jesus, out of love for Paul, and out of love for a lost world. Even though Paul is, is still sharing the gospel, he's still writing his letters, I'm sure he's, he's not doing it how he would like to be doing it or where he would like to be doing it. And so these dear brothers, out of love for Paul, they say, okay, let's, let's get up, let's get out there. Paul can't get out there. So out of love for Paul and our love for Jesus, our love for the gospel, let's go and preach the good news. This speaks of unity in and around the gospel. Unity for the gospel's sake. So although these other guys are preaching Jesus, he says they're doing it out of envy. They're doing, doing it out of, out of rivalry. They're, they're envious of Paul, these other guys. They're, they're envious of his ministry. They're, they're envious out of the, his influence that he has. And they see him as a rival. He's, he's rivaling their ministry. And so Paul says their goal is to inflict him in his imprisonment. As if being in prison is not bad enough, they want to make it worse for him. So I was thinking, what, what would this look like today? Maybe it'd be like a pastor who's, who's envious of the pastor down the road, you know, maybe because his church is, is growing faster, or he's more popular, or you know, he gets more likes when his sermon is uploaded to YouTube, or whatever it might be, or he didn't get invited to speak to the... Uh, at the local conference. And now out of envy and out of that rivalry, he begins to knock that pastor down. Maybe it begins in ca casual conversation when it, whenever someone brings up that church or that pastor, he says, oh, well, I've heard his theology is really bad. Well, I heard he earns this salary and doesn't treat his staff very well. And then from there, it creeps into the pulpit from the same pulpit where he faithfully preaches Jesus, he throws in snide comments about a certain pastor or a certain church. And slowly but surely, his, he causes his congregation to take offense towards this church, towards this pastor. And now suddenly there's division in the body of Christ. And so very slowly but very shrewdly, he begins the, using the preaching of Jesus and all of his other ministry initiatives to build his own kingdom to spot the guy down the road. Unfortunately, stuff like this is not fictional. In fact, I remember hearing a story of a, a mega pastor, a, church, a pastor of a mega church. Uh, it was exploding, you know, one of these multi-site, multi-campus churches with a huge international online presence. People from all around the world would log on and watch the services live. And he tells the story of driving home um, after his services, Sunday after Sunday, and he had passed by a, a small little church uh, with just a handful of, little, of cars in the parking lot, and their service was a bit later, and so he would drive past, and he would see just a 
couple of cars in the parking lot and he began to pray for this church. Each Sunday he prayed for the church as he drove by and he says a couple of months went by and he, he saw a few more cars and a couple of more months and a couple of more weeks and a few more cars. And he says gradually as the months rolled by, he, he drove past one Sunday and it was full. The parking lot was full and he said he even saw children playing in the church playground. The church was thriving and he confesses that instead of thanking the Lord, he was filled with envy. He was jealous. A pastor of a mega church, multi-site, online international presence, jealous of a little church that had turned around, which he prayed for. And we think, well, what, what is that all about? And if we're honest with ourselves, it's not just pastors who can experience this. We all experience jealousy and maybe rivalry. You know, we, you hear of so-and-so maybe in your community group or in the church, you got a promotion at work, and instead of celebrating for them, instead of celebrating with them, we're filled with resentment and anger. So how does Paul respond to this? He says this, look at verse 18. He says, what then? Or as the NRV puts it, but what does it matter? Something, whoa, whoa. is Paul affirming their behavior? Is he saying it doesn't matter if, if as a Christian you have envy and selfishness and rivalry? Not at all, in chapter two, verse three of Philippians, he tells the Philippians not to do anything out of selfish ambition. He says, these are characteristics of the sinful nature. And Paul wrote in numerous letters of his, as Christians, we're to put off these characteristics. We're to put off the old man with all of these characteristics. Put on the new man, created after the image of your Lord and Savior, Jesus. So what does he actually mean? Look at this, he says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, that's good motives or bad, Christ is proclaimed, he says, and in that I rejoice. That's where I find my joy. So as long as Jesus is being proclaimed. Oh, come on, Paul. It's not, it's not like, you know, their church is growing more than yours type of thing. No, they're trying, to, they're trying to harm you. They're so jealous of you, they want you to suffer even more. Here's what you need to do, Paul. This, this is Italy, right? This is the land of the mafia. This is what you need to do. Chat to your imperial guard buddies and tell them to go pay them a visit. You know, make it look like an accident. Many of us would be tempted to handle a situation like that. Many of us tempted to, to fight sinful nature with sinful nature. Flesh take on flesh. But we know when sin takes on sin, it just causes more sin. It just causes more destruction. But not Paul. He saw something greater happening here. He saw it because he was so gripped by it and it produced an overriding sense of joy. As long as Jesus is being proclaimed. So how does the, the power of the gospel overcome detractors? It produces in us an overriding sense of joy so that we ourselves are not detracted, so that we ourselves are not distracted by our own sinful nature. You know that, that um, christian statement that we hear every now and again? It says something like, as Christians, we are to have joy no matter the circumstances that we're in. You heard that one before? Well, here's evidence of it. But in order for us to experience it and not just simply say it, it means that we too need to be centered on the gospel. That we too need to be centered on the person of Jesus. You know why? because he had it 
Look at this, Hebrews 12 verse two, speaking by Jesus, says this, who for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? Endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the most adverse circumstance, the most incredible opposition, despising the shame, and he says, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, despising the shame of the cross, one of the most humiliating ways you could die, despising the circumstances that led up to the cross, the envy and the rivalry of the Pharisees who, who led him to that point. Their insecurity. He endured the cross because his joy in doing so overrode those circumstances. For the joy of obeying his father's will and for the, for the joy of knowing that through the cross, through what he would endure, millions upon millions of people throughout the centuries would be set free, would be reconciled to their heavenly father. And so he went through it. And now sunrise, through faith in that Jesus, that same Jesus, we too can overcome the adversity to the gospel because it is the power of God to continue to save many, many people, no matter the world that we're living in. I mean, just imagine, imagine with me for a second, the tough situations that you're in because of certain people or certain circumstances, they can be redeemed. They can take on new meaning and new purpose, just like Paul's imprisonment. So, can the church survive in an adverse world? Absolutely. Because the gospel has the power to make it a missionary field for the extension of God's kingdom and for his glory. Amen.